1: With John Wall and C.J. Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your
0: podcasts. Kevin Hart here. This basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back on everything. Even the sound system that auto-tunes the game. Curry from way downtown. Will the owner of a red sedan please visit guest services? Bet you've never heard cash back and sound like that. Cash back like a pro with Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase, make more of what's yours.
2: Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC.
1: Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JASONT so they know I sent you. 21+ in present Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. one 877 770 Stop in Louisiana. 1 800 270 7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1 877 8 HOPE NY or text HOPE NY to 467 369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1 800 889 9789 in Tennessee. Visit www. One eight dot one eight hundred gambler dot net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Thursday, everybody. You're almost all the way through the week. I hope you have big plans for the weekend. Absolutely jam-packed show tonight. What an incredible basketball game that Milwaukee Bucks and Brooklyn Nets game was. On so many different levels, it was back and forth like five different times. There was a bunch of shifts and just the style of the game and the way it was being played out. We're going to break that game down. In detail. And then we're going to get into Anthony Davis and the story that he is going to be a Sharania reported that he's going to be returning on Friday. And it looks like LeBron will be as well. I have a couple of key stats that are going to explain why I think that the Lakers still have an outside chance of trying to turn things around. And then for those of you guys who stick around around the end, we're going to play some games and we also have a a breakdown of the LA Clippers and a theory that I have about something that I think might be coming down the line here very soon regarding the Clippers. But let's start with that Bucks Nets game. So like I said, an incredible back and forth type of flow, you know, I always talk about how the NBA is about matchups, you know, their styles make fights. It's all those classic cliches. But the gist of it is, is that, you know, you have a certain punch that you can throw and it might work better against one opponent than it will against another. And these two teams could not be more different in the way that they play basketball. Milwaukee is so much of a brute force attack. At every position, even Chris Middleton, one of their most skilled players is a very physically imposing six foot eight. Huge forward that tries to back you down and work out of the post a lot of the time. But Drew Holiday's this power guard, you know, just like runs people over, get into the basket. Dominant defensive player has a good amount of skill, but it's not his bread and butter. He's very much a brute force power guard is what I always call him. And then you have Giannis Antetokounmpo who is basically like the modern version of Shaq that operates on the perimeter. Going over to the Nets, it's Kyrie Irving arguably the most skilled basketball player to ever touch a basketball court. It's Kevin Durant, you know, this very slender, tall, arguably the best scorer to ever touch the basketball court. And their third best player right now is probably Seth Curry, an undersized guard who is as skilled as you'll find in a role player in the league, but not a brute force type of player. And it was interesting to see that flow. Throughout the game, and the way that that shifted as each team kind of flexed their individual skill sets. At the beginning of the game, it was all Nets. In that first quarter, the Nets were uh, the the Bucks were sending a lot of extra help towards Kevin Durant. They were trapping him on every pick and roll, and they turned him into a playmaker. And he made them pay for that. He had five assists in the first quarter. I thought he was making the right play every time down the floor. It was interesting to see the way that that disrupted his rhythm. As the game went along, this is a long standing theory I have. Like standstill jump shooters, they don't need as much rhythm because every jump shot they take looks the same. Like every shot you see Stanley Johnson take from a three point line in a game looks exactly the same. But guys like KD, guys like Kyrie, they're very rhythm oriented. Every shot they take, Looks different. They have to be adaptable. And I feel like those kinds of guys are very dependent on rhythm. And there was a stretch of the game. I think KD didn't score in the entire second and third quarters. I thought that was directly tied to the way that Milwaukee trapped him and sent extra help towards him throughout kind of disrupting his rhythm. He was playing great basketball. He was making the right play, but that's the other impact that that kind of thing has. It disrupts the rhythm and flow. And KD was able to make some big jump shots towards the end of the game, but he wasn't the same type of efficient jump shooter that we normally see. And I think that that was part of that strategy. But the double teams and all that help and all that trapping was hurting the, the, the Bucks in that first quarter. Right at the end of the first quarter, KD took an easy trap on a, on a ball screen, dumped it to Drummond on the short roll, quick, easy kick out to Seth Curry. Bam, they're up seven to end the first quarter. But then comes the second quarter. KD steps out of the game for a minute, and now that brute force attack takes over Giannis is an absolute monster in the second quarter just running people over getting to the basket and next thing you know we got ourselves a basketball game then we get into that third quarter the Bucks are kind of in control again but then all of a sudden Kyrie starts making shots and KD starts making shots and they go on a run and then we had that weird Chris Middleton play which was you know I you never want to see a very important player to the outcome of a game like that get removed but that's a textbook play that a guy has to be ejected for. You can't pull somebody out of midair when they're jumping at full speed. It's such a dangerous play. Very similar to what happened to Alex Caruso when he broke his wrist, which ironically enough, I was literally listening to Alex Caruso on the JJ Redick podcast today. And he said that, uh, um, that uh, Grayson Allen still has not apologized for that, which I thought was very interesting. Chris Milton's a good guy. He's not that type of player, just a random Act, a random act of violence needed to be ejected. At that point, it looked like the game was over. The Nets made a couple of big plays. They were up by nine with three minutes left. And then it was just incredible execution from that point forward. The extent to which the Bucks locked down defensively was so incredibly impressive to me. That's how you come back from down nine with three minutes left. It's that high-level defensive execution mixed with their athleticism. There was a play in early overtime. Well, first of all, but at the end of regulation, that play where KD got the jump shot, he's working on Wesley Matthews. And as we've seen several times, he did it at the end of regulation and he did it at the end of overtime. And he did it twice at the end of that game seven against the Bucks in the playoffs last year. KD's go-to move when he needs a jump shot at the end of the game is hard dribble left, get cut off, spin, and elevate and that's that you could tell that's the move he gets most comfortable with when he knows he can take off he knows he's going to get a clean look at the basket he takes the outcome out of the defender's hands and puts it in his hands and Giannis really smartly threw a late double team at kd right as he was spinning off of wesley matthews i talk about this a lot on the show but if you catch an offensive player in the middle of their move it's a lot harder for them to counter he disrupted KD and KD is such an insane talent. Somehow he still got a decent look off. He just missed it. But a really smart play from Giannis. And then in overtime, the Bucs just completely clamped down. There was a sequence where KD was working on Wesley Matthews on the left wing. And Giannis kind of doubles out of the strong side corner off of Seth Curry. KD makes the right pass to Seth Curry. Seth Curry's wide open, but somehow Giannis closes out on him and takes away the shot because he's just a freak of nature. The ball gets worked back around, ends up in Drogic's hands. Drogic drives into the lane. uh, uh, Giannis comes over and doubles again, and Seth Curry relocates over to the right wing, gets kicked out to Seth Curry. He's wide open again, and Giannis brings another terrifying closeout to chase him off the line again. And I'm just sitting there watching. I'm like, man, when this Bucks team really, really tightens the screws defensively, they are a frightening team to play against when they have the type of physical, like the, the physical overwhelming nature of their lineups. Like I said, D- Drew Holiday has that power, size, and strength combination that you don't see a lot at the guard position. Obviously, Giannis is a freak. And Chris Middleton did a really nice job all night on Kevin Durant so that he was never comfortable. He applied good ball pressure across half court. I thought it was a really fascinating game. Very up and down. And then in overtime, it just became about the, the Nets being incapable of scoring. And then we had a couple of fouls. I thought it was really impressive the way that Giannis missed those two free throws, two very important free throws. I thought it was a bad call. I thought Katie played great defense on that possession. I thought Giannis chicken-winged him a little, but he got away with it, got the foul, goes to the line, misses both, Then KD goes down and makes all three free throws, but Giannis came right back down. I thought it was genius that Mike Budenholzer did not call a timeout after those free throws. They had one to burn. They didn't use it. It was so smart because you gave Giannis the full court runway. It was very similar to a play in game three of the Eastern Conference semifinals in 2018 when LeBron made the game-winning bank shot floater off the glass against the Raptors. When you have a freight trains type of player, which was only a handful of guys like that in the league. And Giannis is one of them. If you give them a head start in transition, it's actually a better option than bringing it in against the half court set when they just don't have that same head of steam, the wall is already built and it becomes a much tougher, uh, tougher uh, offensive assignment. You know, Nick Claxton kind of hacked down on Giannis right as he was going up. It was unfortunate because KD was right there in help. I think he would have blocked it off the glass cuz Giannis was double pumping on the play so he wasn't trying to dunk it he would have laid it up just unfortunate the way it goes and then KD goes to his go-to move again that hard dribble left spin back elevate and it went in and out and that's how the story goes I still think the Nets are just a little bit better I've talked about this at length a couple days ago this is the way the game goes like Kevin Durant did not have a good shooting night tonight overall I over the course of the, the, uh, um, you know, Giannis got a lot of easy stuff over the course of the game, that stuff that they can tighten up tight, tighten the screws over the course of a playoff series. Cause you know, with Giannis, it's interesting when you, when you build the wall on him, the game does get incredibly difficult for him relative to the way it is when the game's an open floor and he's operating in an advantage all the time. And so the interesting thing is going to be with Giannis is how he can adjust to that, you know, when you're playing a team like Brooklyn and you're Giannis, you have a physical advantage against literally everybody. Last year they tried playing Blake Griffin. He had some success against him early in the series, but Blake Griffin has taken a significant physical decline since then. So he's out of the picture. And so now it's like it's Nick Claxton, it's Kevin Durant, it's a little bit of Andre Drummond on the backside. It's it's just it's not uh, James Johnson actually did an okay job on him for stretches tonight, but they're not physically equipped for that type of matchup. And you know, what's going to be really interesting for me with Giannis is if he does beat Brooklyn. Let's say in the first round, there is going to be a team that he's going to play at some point for seven games that has better physical tools to throw his way. If you look at his playoff run last year, even as he's working up his way through, he makes it through that Brooklyn team that's injury decimated, right? Then he plays that Atlanta team and they play a lot of Clint Capella on him. He's okay. They have some wings, but they're not a super physically stout team. And then you get to the finals. And as soon as DeAndre Ayton was off the floor, they had nobody that they could throw at him. Uh, Jay Crowder's too short. Their backup center, Frank Kaminsky, was just completely incapable of that task. And that's why when I, you know, I talked about when I did the video talking about how I thought Giannis was still below Kevin Durant and LeBron, I talked about how those two guys have this plethora of evidence of the way they succeed in so many different environments. I like for instance, LeBron in 2020 in the bubble, he was on the better team every single series. He had Anthony Davis on his team as well. Like if that was his only title, you could, Point to some fortunate circumstances there. Kevin Durant, Steph Curry are on their couches. You know, they uh, they had the the most talent in the in the that entire playoff run. The Miami Heat were kind of a strange team to make it out of the Eastern Conference. But you don't judge LeBron for that because he has so much other success in his past that adds legitimacy to it. You've also seen him do what he did in 2016. So you don't think of 2020 as a fortunate run. You've seen what he did in 2013 and in 2012, so you don't think of that as a fortunate run, even with all of his finals runs when he didn't win the title. Giannis got some beneficial, you know, luck of the draw type stuff with his matchups throughout the playoff run last year. So when I was saying, like, you know, I'd like to see him do it again, what I'm talking about is, like, what happens when you get the bad matchup? You know, who's going to be like the Spurs were for LeBron, the team that takes away everything that he does well and forces him to do something that makes him Uncomfortable. There's going to be a team at some point in the next couple of years, very well maybe this year, that puts Giannis in a predicament again. And I'm really curious to see how he responds. Because to me, that's going to be the difference between him being on the same tier as Kevin Durant and LeBron and him being above those guys. That's the next step the malleability, the facing your worst enemy, your greatest weakness, staring it right in the eye and overcoming that. That's going to be the 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 difference between Giannis being a one-time champion and him being a five-time champion. Because in that five trips to the finals or whatever it is, there's going to be years where it doesn't break perfectly for you, where you don't get to play Trey Young in the conference finals, where you don't get Kyrie Irving landing on someone's foot, where Kevin Durant does you know, have his foot behind the line. There are going to be series where that kind of stuff works against him. And I'm really curious to see how Giannis evolves in the long run there. Again, like I said the other night, the biggest thing I'm looking for him there is his passing ability. Way less concerned about his ability to knock down a jump shot. For the record... It is a huge weapon that he was able to knock down that step back three tonight to send it to overtime. That's a great weapon to have in your bag for very specific scenarios. But nobody can guard Giannis one-on-one on on the block, literally in the entire league. So I'm more concerned about how he handles multiple defenders than I am for him shooting jump shots and things along those lines. When I'm comparing guys like Giannis and uh, and, uh, KD and LeBron, or I'm comparing guys like you know, Jokic and Embiid. It's a lot of like in the eye of the beholder and a lot of like, what's their situation like, right? Because like I said, they couldn't be more different. KD is surgical. Giannis is brute force. So a lot of it depends on the roster that you're with. A lot of it depends on matchups. There are going to be specific matchups where, where look, Philly's a great example. I think Brooklyn would destroy Philly. Because they can attack a lot of Philly's specific weaknesses. I know Giannis just beat Philly the other night and looked great, but in the course of a playoff series, they have a lot more audibles, a lot more, you know, extra cards in their deck that they can throw at Giannis that will make things more complicated for them. I think Philly is a tougher playoff matchup for Giannis and for. Uh, Milwaukee than they've had in the last couple of years. That's going to be an interesting wrinkle there. So when people say like, which guy do you think is better KD or Giannis or who's going to win this playoff series, the Nets or, or Brooklyn. So, so much of it is in the eye of the beholder. And so much of it is about matchups. And so much of it is about who else is on the floor with you. Look at how much the Kyrie injury completely changed the dynamic of that series last year, but it was an incredibly entertaining basketball game. You know, uh, that's, that's the that's that's why I love the format of the seven game series. It takes some of that flux. It takes some of that wild cardness out, and makes it so that you have a chance to fight another day. So that you have a chance to change some of there. There were a lot of possessions in the middle of that game, where the Nets were straight up giving Giannis lanes to the basket without help. Like that's stuff that you can tighten up over the course of a playoff series. I'm really curious. The Bucks absolutely strangled the Nets. Defensively at the end of that game, but there were some openings. They were sending a ton of help. They were sending a lot of strong side overload type stuff. So I'm really curious to see how the Nets could counter that kind of thing. Ba- fantastic basketball game, gun to my head. I still think the Nets are just a hair better, just a hair more versatile. And I think they have more time and more room to improve between now and potentially a matchup with one of the better teams in the East at that point. I- I- I'm hopeful that they catch a good draw the first round so they get out easy because I would love to see just a huge, you know, uh, incredible a highlight fight between one of these two teams at the end of the day. For those of you who are just joining us, this is Hoops Tonight presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. I wanted to move on to the Lakers for a minute. Currently playing the Jazz tonight. We weren't going to cover that tonight because of LeBron and Anthony Davis being out. We're going to talk a lot of Lakers over the course of the next week because I really genuinely believe that they're going to have, as long as everybody stays healthy, as long as AD stays healthy, and as long as LeBron stays healthy, I think this Laker team is going to make a little bit of noise over this last six-game stretch of the season and show that they can potentially be better than what they've shown us this season. And I have one stat to evidence that. So this season... There's, there, I've shown you some of the ugly stats surrounding LeBron and AD this year, but there's context there. For instance, I said LeBron and Anthony Davis this year on the floor together have fared worse than the Lakers did last year with LeBron and AD on the bench. That's how much of a catastrophe this season has been. But the context there is that he spent the entire first chunk of the season playing DeAndre Jordan at center, who's not an NBA player, playing Kent Bazemore at the two guard, who may or may not be an NBA player anymore, certainly wasn't a good fit with this specific team. There was a lot of like, you know, just the Lakers playing into their weaknesses. So I have one stat that is evidence of the fact that I think the Lakers have a better punch than they've shown. So this year, when LeBron, AD, and Russ are all on the court together, but there's no center. So DeAndre Jordan and Dwight Howard off the floor, any of the guys who played center for the Lakers this year off the floor, they've played 184 minutes with that trio. Which is sad for a whole other reason because that's just how terrible the injury luck has been this season. For all that we've talked about, about all the self-sabotage, all the Rob Polinka, all the genie bus, all the LeBron pushing for the rush trade, all the bad signings, injuries have played a huge role in the way this has gone. So that trio has only played 184 minutes without a center, and they are plus 11.4 net. That's a pretty damn good number. It's not a dominant number but it's a really good number. That's a number that tells me a team that can potentially win a championship if some things break, right? And that's with no continuity. That's with LeBron and AD barely playing a handful of games together in a row before one of them gets hurt. That's with the clunky rust fit. There's a bunch of other contexts there that would even push that number lower than you would think, but they're plus 11.4 in 184 minutes with those three on the floor and no center this year. And that is the that is the light at the end of the tunnel. Now, the reason why that could get better, this is the case for why this team could potentially go on a run, is now you're playing better role players. Instead of it being Kent Bazemore, instead of it being Avery Bradley, instead of it being Trevor Ariza, and instead of it being Dwight Howard minutes, which have proven to be really bad as of late, Instead of those players, it's guys like Austin Reeves, who's taken almost all of Avery Bradley's minutes. He's a significantly better player at this point in his career. It's been Stanley Johnson taking over for Trevor Ariza. He's a better player at this point in his career. It's Wenyan Gabriel playing some of those other forward center minutes. He's a better player right now than Dwight Howard or DeAndre Jordan Ward. So you've got better rotational role players in that mix now. And then last but not least, it's about the shrunken rotation. Over the course of the regular season, you're trying to keep LeBron and AD's minutes down to 38 minutes per game. There's these random shifts that don't make any sense. Think about how often this year you've looked at random lineups that have had three little guards on the floor, like uh, Avery Bradley, Russell Westbrook, Malik Monk at the same time with like Taylor Horton Tucker, who's only 6'4", playing power forward. There's been a lot of examples of, of where the Lakers have had to dive into their weaknesses as a result of just injuries and and trying to get through the regular season. In the playoffs, it's going to be 38 to 40 minutes of LeBron and AD. In a big, pivotal game, it's going to be 42 to 44 minutes of those guys. It's only going to be like five or six other role players that get to play. Frank's going to be able to just straight up bench a guy if he's not playing well because he's not trying to spell for the 82 game season he's not trying to save people's legs you're just playing every game like it's your last those are the reasons why i think they have a puncher's chance if you look at their regular uh their remaining schedule so everything broke down over the last two days exactly like i expected although it was a little touch and go with san antonio and memphis the other night uh i can't remember who it was for the spurs but one of their young guards had a decent look to win that game And had he made it, all of a sudden you're down one game on the Spurs with them having the tiebreaker. That could have been the final nail in the coffin, but things broke the way I expected. I expect the Lakers to finish losing tonight in Utah, which will put both teams, the Spurs and the Lakers, at 31-45 and with six games left except for the Lakers are bringing back LeBron James and Anthony Davis. So the remaining schedule for the Lakers, they play the Pelicans on Friday, they play the Nuggets on Sunday, and then they finish the season with the Suns, the Warriors, the Thunder, and the Nuggets. Now let's take a real quick look at those games. Do I think the Lakers, with LeBron James and Anthony Davis, playing for their basketball lives at home on Friday will get a win? Yes, I do. Do I think that they're capable of beating that Nuggets team that's, you know, not that talented? Absolutely. Do I think they can beat the Suns? Hell no, not yet. <laughs> maybe by, by maybe by the time they get to the first round, but that's probably a loss, but they could be 2 and 1 at that point. Do I think they could beat the Warriors without Steph Curry? Absolutely. Do I think they can beat the the Thunder? Absolutely. And then there's the Nuggets again. So 5 and 1 is very much on the table down the stretch. In fact, I would argue if LeBron and AD are healthy and playing like their lives depend on it, they should win those games. So that will put the Lakers firmly, potentially, if the Pelicans drop some games, potentially at that nine seed, but that'll get them into the play-in. I believe as long as LeBron and AD don't get hurt here in the next couple of days, I believe the Lakers will make it into the play-in game. And for all the reasons that I just laid out, I think they have a chance to, at least a puncher's chance, to make some noise there. Would they have to get some breaks? Yeah, would Chris Paul have to not play super well? Would the Suns potentially have to have an injury? Would there have to be some younger role players to struggle? Absolutely. There's a bunch of stuff that has to break right for them, but I'm in a different mind space than I was about a month ago when it looked like this team
0: was basically trying to quit. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, And the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Warm weather brings many outdoor activities. Happy hours after work,
1: weekend hikes, pool parties, and family barbecues. With all that time spent in the sun, we're often not thinking about what it's doing to our hair. Those rays can seriously affect your scalp and hair, making right now the perfect time to start taking Nutrafol to help keep your hair healthy this summer. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster-growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrifol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology, life stage, and lifestyle factors. Physician-formulated with drug-free ingredients, NutriFol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning—stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism—through whole body health. With NutriFol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day and you'll see results in three to six months. Get results you can run your fingers through. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-H-O-O-P-S. R A F O L dot com promo code hoops. That's H O O P S. That's neutrofoil dot com promo code hoops. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, Angie has cost guides that will tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area, and the app is free and easy to use. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com, or download the app today. All right, everybody on YouTube, I'm bringing my guy Carson on. We are going to play a game. What's up,
2: Jason? How you doing, man? I'm doing great. This has been a super fun night of NBA action, obviously. Bucks Nets you talked about we got a uh, Clippers Bulls and OT tomorrow has 44 now I think so we've, oh uh, we've oh had a goodness. lot of good basketball to watch yeah all right we've got a fun game for you here today it's called that's what he said so we're going to give you a soundbite a quote from around the league that we think is interesting and have you listen and then I'll give you a question get your thoughts on it sound good all right I'm excited let's hear it All right. So the first one we have is from Draymond Green on the Draymond Green show. Obviously, his podcast with the volume talking about how he was disappointed with his own play as of late with the Warriors play as of late overall. So let's take a listen.
1: The reality is I've been terrible. Um, I've been terrible defensively. I've been terrible offensively. And so that's just what it is. Now, what am I going to do to fix that? Well, I'm going to continue to do what I've been doing, which is putting the work in and ultimately uh, my whole life is a product of hard work you put the work in you get the results i know i've put the work in but i also know things don't happen overnight you know you don't just go from missing two and a half almost three months of basketball where everybody's
0: playing at a high level and just returning and and that's that you know it, it doesn't work like that
2: so obviously this has now been a pretty consistent downward trend for the warriors and you've talked about this a lot as of late So how concerned are you about them right now as we head into the postseason?
1: I don't think they're a top-tier contender, but I've felt that way for a long time, and it's not attached to Draymond. I think I had them at second in my contenders the other day, and it's only because of how much I trust those three. I have an unbelievable amount of respect for Steph Clay and Draymond and what they've accomplished in their past and what they will be capable of when they get to the postseason. Now, as far as Draymond goes, a couple things like, you know, the the wall of getting out of NBA shape and into, or I'll just call it basketball shape. Um, when you're getting in and out of basketball shape, it's a process. Uh, we, we call it breaking through the wall. So essentially, there comes a point when you're really working your way back into shape where your body almost gets behind in its recovery and you feel clunky and you feel slow. And it can take like the better part of a month before you really get back like if if they make it to the second or third round it might take until the middle of the second round or early third round before Draymond really really looks like Draymond Uh, just just in terms of his physicality because that's just a process now as far as, as his offense goes so much of it is Steph like Steph and Draymond are very symbiotic players a lot of what a Draymond does offensively depends on his ability to make reads in four on three scenarios and the only way he can get four on three scenarios is if you have a player like Steph Curry that commands a trap on every single pick and roll. So a lot of what Draymond does offensively is limited when he's not playing with Steph Curry. And, and in return, Steph needs Draymond for everything that he does. So they're very symbiotic pairing, but I'm not worried about Draymond at all. And I, and he's right. I trust his hard work and I, I have, I have no doubt that they'll be able to recapture what they were as long as Steph can get back on the court and get
2: healthy. What do you think is the one thing that needs to change most for them beyond obviously just getting Steph back, but what do they really still need to figure out and fix above everything else? I think they're fine. Like
1: they, they, and right now as currently constructed. They're as good as they can be without a massive identity change. So like I, I'm a, so they've, they're like the Lakers with their injury luck this year. Like Draymond got hurt, was out forever. And then he comes back and then Steph got hurt. So everything you've seen on the court with them this year is kind of irrelevant to what they're going to be right now th- that, that group of of Steph Clay Dre and Jordan Poole kind of off the bench, and then all of those wings that they have, that all works great. The only the greatest weakness of this team is the same weakness they had in 2015, 2016, and in 2019 after Kevin Durant went down. Steph Curry is not a physically imposing star. So when defenses really lock in on him, if he misses shots, they don't have another great punch. I love the big wings in the league. This is why I always get drawn back to Giannis LeBron and Kevin Durant. When you have the ability to really apply a physical pressure on the game with your physical tools. I think that's an extra punch and an extra versatility. So I'm still a big believer in them when they're healthy. I'd put them right below Phoenix in that next tier, but they're never going to become the world beaters. They were again, unless they find a big forward that can develop into a rim pressuring guy Wiggins, isn't it? Maybe it becomes Jonathan Kaminga in the future, but you know how I feel about lining up timelines. So who knows, but that's, that's what I view as their biggest weakness.
2: All right, well, again, that specific soundbite came from Draymond's podcast, and he had Jason Tatum on this week. That's coming out soon, so everybody should go ahead and check that out. Always super interesting hearing him talk to other NBA guys. All right, so our next quote here is related to the Defensive Player of the Year conversation, and you just did a Tim's Tape breakdown on the Jazz defense. Obviously, Rudy Gobert is always somewhere in that conversation, some people calling him Stifle Tower, some people calling him Rudy Gogurt, deeply divisive. But Marcus Smart came out and talked about sort of how they compare defensively, and he said, Rudy can't guard all five spots, I can guard all five spots, and I've been doing it, I've done it very well. So, Jason, what's your reaction to that, and who would you have as Depoy right now?
1: Wait, that was Marcus Smart that said that? Yeah. You're kidding me. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> I like everybody else who a couple years ago jumped on the Rudy Gobert slander train, you know, When that all was going down, Utah Jazz fans, people that I trust, like I I try to find people that cover each team that follow them on a day-to-day basis because you can never, like my knowledge of the Lakers will never be the same as what I have for the rest of the teams because I've literally watched every single game they've played this year. For the rest of the league, I do my best to parse out my time, right? The Jazz fans kept coming to me and saying like, it's not Rudy, it's the other guys. And so I dove into the tape extensively. Rudy guards ones absolutely fine. Rudy can guard all five positions on the floor extremely well. He is not the problem. I know highlights get put in there where a guy scores on somebody, but all of the best defensive players in the in uh, in the in the league get scored on. You can find Ben Simmons getting scored on. You can find Kawhi getting scored on. It's all part of the bit surrounding Rudy Gobert. The gist of it is the Utah Jazz have a huge void in their perimeter defense, and so they rely on Rudy Gobert to clean everything up. And all of the really smart teams in the league have figured out that if you get him in rotation, even just once or twice, and get him out to the perimeter, then all of a sudden you have no defense on the perimeter and then no help on the back line, and it's just a layup line. They have a history of having really good defense in the you know aggregate grand scheme regular season but they struggle against really good teams. They struggle against five out teams. They struggle against teams that have a lot of guys who can dribble drive. And so I I am going to have Rudy Gobert's back here. Marcus Smart's amazing, but he's not Rudy Gobert.
2: So I think this is interesting because a lot of times people do bring up the argument of versatility, and this is always a thing with Draymond versus Rudy, and it was a thing with Ben Simmons versus Rudy, but... My thought has kind of been, if you're just talking about regular season defense, you know, when it comes to uh, just the overwhelming impact that he does have as that deterrent and, like, the defensive on-off numbers, the opponent field goal differential, it's really hard to argue against Rudy Gobert as Depoy kind of every year. But if he's not really the best defensive player on the planet when it matters most, do you think that there needs to be, like, a reevaluation there? Or, like, do you just kind of have to give it to him because in regular season terms... You know, nobody really is more impactful most of the time.
1: So but in my in Rudy's defense though, the jazz defense falling apart in the postseason is not necessarily Rudy falling apart. So now if we're talking Mm -hmm. like who's better Draymond or Rudy that's a different conversation because they're kind of different in a bunch of different ways. Rudy's all length and Draymond is all physicality. You know, he's a very he's a good vertical defender. He bumps people off of their line really, really well. But like both of them have shown a propensity to get beat in straight line drive scenarios on the perimeter. Neither of them are great out in the perimeter. They're just fantastic back line defenders. I would argue that Draymond's probably a little bit better of a backline communicator like he's a higher IQ defender which I think might give him an edge in my book but like again I think I think that I think if we saw Rudy Gobert doing what Brooke Lopez was doing we would all be terrified so for the bucks so I'm I'm I guess what I'm saying is I want to distance the Jazz's defense from what Rudy Gobert is capable of of a different as a defensive player if that makes sense
2: Yeah and you mentioned the Bucks there real quick we have some people in the comments talking about Giannis. Where do you think he figures into that conversation? For defense? Um, yeah, in terms of deploy, best defender alive.
1: So he is, as a help defender, the best you'll find in the league. But so Joel Embiid did a really interesting bit on this with J.J. Redick the other day in his podcast. Actually, I think it released today. And Joel basically said, I think a big man should be defensive player of the year every year. And what he pointed out, which is an interesting element to this, is in a lot of ways, the the backline defender, so whoever plays that Draymond, Rudy Gobert, Brooke Lopez type of role, that guy actually is the quarterback of the defense. So beyond his individual responsibilities, he's also responsible because he's behind everybody. Like, it doesn't make sense for the point guard to call out plays because he can't see what's happening behind him. But the backline defender is essentially making a read based on what he sees as the offense is coming down the floor, and he's calling out coverages. So there's a whole other element to that. So as good as Giannis is, and I'm not undercutting that at all, he kind of factors more into that, like, he's a perimeter player who's great in help but he's not a Draymond Green like quarterback of a defense which is a different I talked right. a lot today today he's frightening when he's closing out he's amazing he's you could argue in a one or two possession setting you wouldn't want anybody else on the planet as a defender but in terms of the day in day out chess match type stuff, especially in a playoff series, I think I'd have to put the the Rudy Gobert and the Draymond still ahead of him because you have to factor in that quarterback of the defense element, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well I gotta say, Jason, you are just throwing me lobs with the transitions here because you mentioned Embiid on the JJ Redick podcast, Old Man in the Three. That is where our next soundbite comes from. And you've been critical of Embiid's tendency to go out and sort of hunt fouls in an unnatural fashion. And he actually spoke out on that because J.J. kind of called him out about it for a second. So let's take a listen.
1: This is a great example of what I like to call foul-baiting. Yeah. That's not foul-baiting.
0: This is you, what we're going to talk, talk about here. But
1: you play basketball. This is basketball IQ. I, I'm i in a penalty. And right before that play, uh, I don't know if it was before that play or the play after. I just knew that, you know, they had a couple fouls and... It's easy, like that's. This is basketball, like you. So people are always saying flops or you know foul baiting and all that stuff. That's just me being smarter than everybody else.
2: So what do you think, Jason? Do you agree with Embiid, aka the NBA player you would least like to be slapped by?
1: <laughs> so first of all I loved the way that JJ went at him in that podcast there was another clip at the very end like right as he's signing up he's like oh by the way when you're working out with Drew Hanley, what do you say like how often do you work on foul baiting like 50% of the time like 70% of the time And he's like kind of rubbing it in his face I loved it because you I you know Joel's right he's right it's an intelligence thing it's a basketball IQ thing um the guys like Chris Paul the guys like James Harden the guys like Joel Embiid in the league I I admire them taking advantage of the rules. When I am mad about foul grifting, it's more towards the league. Like, for instance, at the beginning of the season, they did such a great job legislating it out, but then the refs just kind of all drifted back into their old selves as the season progressed, and I put the pressure on the league to deal with this problem. So, when like, foul grifting is not a Joel B problem, it's an NBA problem. However, I don't think it's smart to build that into your game in such a way that is so reliable because we know the league is attacking it. Like you literally saw this entire off season. It was a big story. I would venture to guess that within five years, that will be a huge taboo thing in the league. The idea of doing anything that's not a usual basketball play to try to score. So it's like, you know, it's, it's like You know, like when I was in high school, I could get away with not studying, but then I got to college and the material became more complicated, and all of a sudden, something that I had been reliant on was no longer reliable. That's kind of the way I look at it. Like, if I was James Harden, if I was Joel Embiid, if I was Chris Paul, I would be preparing for the fact that this will not be allowed soon. And I wouldn't want to be caught with my pants down and be one of the guys who's massively struggling. And I pointed this out the other day, but it's just, it's just the truth of the matter. As good as Joel Embiid is, there's another bit later in that show where he talks about everyone says I, I, I would only average 17 points a game if I didn't get free throws. And he was like, well, that's part of the game. Yeah, but it might not be one day. That's my point. And like, like, Mm you might have to be more reliable putting the ball in the basket. And right now you shoot like in the high forties from the field. And Giannis is shooting in the high fifties and Nikola Jokic is shooting in the high fifties and Katie and LeBron are doing it with, uh, you know, they're, they're just more efficient at putting the ball in the basket. So you don't want to be caught behind in that regard. So yeah, not, not Joel Embiid's fault, but he needs to read the writing on the wall.
2: Yeah. And to your point, I mean, his first time's, First two times in the postseason, I think his free throw attempts were down significantly. Another guy who people would sort of classify probably in a similar conversation, Harden. I think his postseason career average is like at least a free throw fewer than regular season. So obviously as that dynamic changes, like you said, you got to be able to actually just put the ball into the basket. So, all right, that is it for that's what he said. Just to provide an update on the game that I mentioned when I came on. Bulls won in double overtime. DeMar had 50. So uh, another signature performance from him in what What has did Paul been, George and, finish with? Let me check that real quick. You said he had 40-something in regulation, right? DeRozan had 44 during overtime. PG had 22.
1: PG had 22. Did he shoot well? What did he shoot from three?
2: He shot, let's see.
1: Cause I was, I was blown away that he shot six for nine from three after stepping away from the game for as long as he did missing a ligament in his shooting arm. Like it just doesn't make any sense to me. And when you get away from the game of basketball and you're like, you're adapting to the speed, like your jumper is the first thing that goes. So I was so impressed. So
2: did he not play well tonight? Tonight? He did not. He was seven of 22 of nine from deep. So the shot was not quite there. Okay. All
1: right, Carson, I appreciate you, man. We're going to see you in just a couple of minutes, right? All right. So um, what happened with Paul George tonight was a little more in line with what I was expecting, him kind of building his rhythm back. But so the Clippers the Clippers present a really, really interesting question mark or what if coming up over the course of the next uh, couple of weeks because – I'm so flabbergasted as to why Paul George missing a ligament in his shooting elbow would not get surgery so that he could be available to work out all offseason to be prepared for next season with Kawhi coming back. It just is, it's beyond nonsensical. You would assume that at some point He's going to have to get surgery. It's not like Paul George wants to finish his career missing a ligament, right? I mean, who knows? I don't know what the internal conversations are, but it was so strange to me, which got me thinking a lot about this. Why would Paul George come back? They're in the play in game, right? If they win, let's say they go to Minnesota and win and they get the seven seed, you've got to go on the road to Memphis for a playoff series. They're going to be like Memphis is going to be heavily favored in that series, even with Paul George. And, you know, it's just, I didn't see the point. And so what I kept wondering is like, what if they know something we don't know? And so then out of nowhere, we see the Clippers release a photo of the Clippers boarding the team plane yesterday and Kawhi Leonard's getting on the plane. And again, it's so hard to make reads on this kind of stuff because Kawhi keeps everything so close to the chest. His circle... His circle is literally as airtight as any professional athlete, as any celebrity that we've seen in the modern era, which is insane when you think about social media and the ease of access to information. So we would never know. Like if Kawhi was going to play tomorrow or if he didn't plan on playing next season at all, we wouldn't know. We would find out when he put the jersey on. That's the way it would work. And so it's, it's genuinely like an interesting situation. So my theory is that the Clippers are looking at this situation. They looked at how much they punished Phoenix last year. They were a really, really interesting matchup for Phoenix last year. They had a lot of success against them. They lost in six games, but there were at least two games that I can think of in that series that could have very easily gone the other way. So I think the Clippers are looking at the situation and they're like, we like our chances in the West. The Memphis is too young. Golden State is having injury issues. Nobody else in the conference is nearly as talented. And we like our chances against Phoenix. And then we get to the finals. Who knows what can happen? And I think that they're having conversations behind the scenes. And I think Kawhi has been telling them that he plans on coming back. That's my theory. Again, I have nothing to support it because Kawhi is never in a million years going to tell us anything, but I like it as an interesting kind of wrinkle here. I've talked a lot over the course of the last couple of years, especially since, uh, especially since Ty Lue got there, especially after what happened against Phoenix last year and then getting to the conference finals without Kawhi. They, they are the best team in the league, in my opinion, at maximizing talent. They have the perfect mix of modern coverages and schemes mixed with traditional reliable ones. They run drop when they can. They switch when they can. They mix coverages up a lot. They've even thrown zone in there from time to time. They're a very, very smart basketball team. This is credit to Ty Lu. I talked a lot about this over the ever since the Cleveland situation, but Ty Lu was rigid when he was in Cleveland and a lot of coaches struggle in their first coaching gig trying to inflict their personality on a team. And he's come to the Clippers and he's become one of the most malleable and open minded and ahead of the curve type of coaches that we have in the league. And he, it, it, there, there's, I, I'm really, really interested to see because basically he's taken Reggie Jackson, you know, a couple of interesting young players like Terrence Mann and Amir Coffey. And, you know, obviously Zubach is good. I did a whole video on Isaiah Hartenstein the other day and the way that he punished Rudy Gobert for helping. They've got some interesting young players, but it's a lot of Reggie Jackson and Marcus Morris and Nick Batum. It's not a a super talented team. And they're just manufacturing wins by playing really smart basketball. And this takes me back to the whole bit that I had about the Lakers a while back. When When you have of the playoffs as an excuse to shrink your rotation. And when you plug massive role superstars back in, it takes everything. It takes all of the bad out. So right now the Lakers are playing a game against the jazz and they have to fill the, the normal 72 minutes that LeBron and Anthony Davis would play with vastly inferior players. So what do you think the product is going to be, especially with that team struggling so much with size and athleticism? Look at the Clippers. They've been better than the Lakers this year, significantly better than the Lakers this year. And they've taken 36 minutes of Paul George and Kawhi and replaced them with inferior players. So plugging those two guys back into the picture, slotting everybody appropriately, That, Not to mention the fact that they will instantly become the two best defensive players on the team. It becomes a really, really interesting dynamic. And that combination of Tyloo and his ability to maximize talent with proper slotting, with a shrunken rotation, with Kawhi and PG back into the fold instantly makes them a contender. Now, how much of a contender they are depends on a lot of different things. What does Kawhi look like when he gets back? How quickly d- does he get his rhythm? Uh, like I said, he might not even come back, right? But in that scenario where they do come back, if they can get the fit and the field back quickly, this could be a really, really dangerous team. And as much as this team has a clear favorite in Phoenix, and they do, this league is very open, In a lot of different ways, as dominant as Phoenix has been, they don't have the top tier superstars as good as the Bucks have looked as of late. I'm still worried about their defense as good as the Nets can be. I'm worried about their defense and their ability to handle brute force physicality as good as Golden State can be. I'm worried about their health and whether or not Steph and Draymond are going to look like themselves. Philly lost in Detroit tonight. They've got a whole bunch of issues of their own Miami Got a big win the other uh, last night against Boston, but uh, they're not a very, they're not a top-tier contender. The league is very much open as long as you think you can beat Phoenix. And all of these teams that have these superstars, they all think they can beat Phoenix because they know that they can, if they can at least win the top, the top heavy stuff. If you can outplay Chris Paul and if you can outplay Devin Booker, you give yourself a chance. And obviously, Kawhi and Paul George are very capable of that. One thing that would be interesting is avoiding Phoenix buys you time to get those guys back in rhythm. So they're the eight seed right now. They're probably going to finish as the eighth seed. If they can go into Minnesota and win that play-in game and catch Memphis instead with Kawhi and Paul George, that buys you an extra round, or two, two rounds actually, to potentially Get your legs underneath you before you have to deal with that Phoenix matchup. Again, no idea what's going to happen with Kawhi, but he's a very, very interesting wrinkle here. And I have a theory that that's the only reason in the world that you would bring Paul George back, missing a ligament to flounder in the play-in game, if that makes sense. It has to be for something bigger than that, if that makes sense. All right, we're going to bring my guy Carson back on for one more game before we get out of
2: here. Jason, long time no see. All right, so this game, pretty intuitive concept. I bet you can figure it out. It's called What's More Likely. I'm going to present you two options. You tell me which one is more likely. And you mentioned the Sixers lost in Philly tonight. James Harden was a sparkling 4 of 15 from the field. So given that, given the perennial drama that surrounds him, what's more likely, that he signs the Max in Philly or is on another team next season?
1: he's going to be in Philly next season on the max, but it's because Daryl Morey thinks much more highly of James Harden than we do. (laughs) So like, uh, I, I think that it really just comes down to that. I mean, I said after the other, the game, the other day when James Harden played really well, um, that so much was dependent on his ability to get to the basket. And I wasn't convinced that he can do that enough. And like in that same show, I said, we judge players over large sample sizes, not over short sample sizes. If you catch Taylor Horton Tucker on the right night this year, you'd think he's a future all-star, but his trade value right. is lower than it's ever been. James Harden has been mostly bad this year with little flashes of good. And how did he respond to one of his best games of the season, losing to the Bucks the other day? He responded by going four for 15 against the Detroit Pistons. So like, I, I am nowhere near as high on him. I think signing him for a four-year, whatever the hell that number is going to be, like $240, 250000000 million, whatever that deal is going to be, I would stay away from that with a 10-foot pole. It is guaranteed to be an albatross at the end. But Daryl Morey's big thing is, like, sign the guy, and he already loves James Harden, and he believes in his ability to flip contracts if he needs to. I wouldn't do it. But at this point, you have to, especially when you factor in everything they just gave up to get him.
2: Well, according to Daryl Morey, the guy that he has is better than peak Michael Jordan offensively. So he probably (laughs) does feel pretty good about that. Well, the man who showed Harden and the Sixers up tonight was Cade Cunningham. who has been playing really, really well as of late and had 27 tonight. So what's more likely, Jason? That Kate Cunningham or Evan Mobley is a superstar player in this league.
1: Oh, I think they're both gonna be, but I'll, I yeah. think Evan Mobley is definitely a safer, excuse me, a safer bet because the thing with Evan Mobley, and scouts will tell you this, he has consistently struggled with offensive aggression. He's a very naturally giving player. He's very much like, I just want to be a cog in the system. But his talent vastly supersedes that. I think he has the potential to be better than Anthony Davis. Um, We'll see. But I think that he's a safer bet with his combination of physical tools and the obvious increased aggression that's going to come from him in the coming years. I love Cade Cunningham's game. He kind of reminds me of like a a more natural American version of Luka Doncic in the sense that he's more of a traditional small forward build, but he doesn't have the overwhelming athleticism, which has forced him to build out the details of his skill set. I always talk about with Luka, what impresses me the most with him is he gets by people off the dribble by using his, he sells every part of every move with every part of his body. And as a result, he gets little tiny windows of space and then that's when he uses his strength and physicality to get by people. Cade Cunningham is very similar. A lot of freak athlete type of players, they don't build out those details because they can go down the floor and cross over and they're by the guy anyway, just because they're faster. And I've I've been super impressed with Cade's like very methodical approach to offense. I think he's gonna be a superstar too, but I would say that Evan Mobley is certainly more likely to be, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think. Both these guys were, I mean, exceptional prospects. Philosophically, I mean, I think that it's interesting. Do you have a perspective on a guy like Mobley who did seem to be really high floor because of the freakish defensive versatility, all the things that he could already do well offensively versus in a guy like Cade, you have potentially, you know, a complete offensive ceiling raiser because of just the kind of dynamic guard that he is like, obviously every case by case is going to be a little bit different, but do you think that one of those two things is inherently more valuable?
1: So, I inherently think that the point forward, the big guy who can initiate everything from the perimeter is a more valuable player. That's why I did a whole bit on this uh, last week involving why I think KD and Giannis and LeBron are better than Jokic and Embiid by a big margin. But that said, like KD doesn't fit that physical imposing mold. Like he's, you know, and this, it'll be really interesting to see if this affects Luca when he starts playing in really high leverage playoff series. Like when Luca gets to the conference finals or Luca gets to the finals, if there is a team that can start to wear on him physically, I'll be really curious. It hasn't happened yet. And if you, if any team could have done it, it would have been the Clippers, but like KD has this incredible frame. And then Giannis and LeBron are once in a generation freight train athletes. Cade Cunningham is neither. So. I do naturally gravitate towards the archetype of Cade Cunningham in the sense that I look at those guys as more valuable, but in this specific case, I I would lean towards Mobley because I don't think Cade can get to the same ceiling as a LeBron AD or Giannis. I view Cade as a guy that if things really go well for him, he'll be a persistent top 10 player in the NBA, but Mm. I don't think he could ever crack the top five. Whereas I believe Evan Mobley very much could. And another one last note on Mobley. He has significantly quicker feet than Anthony Davis, which is a huge part of what will eventually guide his offensive ceiling. Because the big reason why AD can't be Giannis, the big reason why AD can't initiate from the perimeter is he actually has a slow first step. And so he can beat guys off the dribble when they're big plotting centers. But if you put like, if you put Chris Middleton on Anthony Davis, like Chris is going to make him shoot over the top. He's going to slide his feet, you know, but I think Evan Mobley has some of that potential to be a perimeter initiator because he'll be able to make quick moves that generate more separation because he's quicker in my opinion.
2: All right. Well, as we talk about some of the great young players that we have in the league right now, Obviously, Luka is, you know, as respected and uh, promising as any. So what's more likely, Jason, Luka Doncic wins multiple MVPs or no MVPs in his career?
1: I, I think it's far more likely that he gets multiple MVPs. I, we have not given Luka enough credit for floating a pretty untalented situation and I think he's aware of these details. Uh, in his podcast with J.J. Redick that he did the other day, he directly attributed their recent success to defense. And it's an interesting indicator of where Luca's headspace is at. Because there's, this year, they have a gimmicky defense. I think, I think they're top 10 still, if I remember correctly. They've slipped a little bit of late, but they've been a pretty good defensive team of late. But they do not have defensive personnel. You know, Maxine Kleba is not a dominant backline defensive player. Dorian Finney-Smith is an excellent defensive wing, but he's pretty much the only guy like that they have on the roster. The rest of these guys, Spencer Dinwiddie, Jalen Brunson, they're bringing in a lot of lesser defensive players. There is going to be a stretch of time in Luca's career where he plays five to seven years in a row with an elite defense and a great secondary ball handler that can create when he's off the floor. And when that happens, they're going to win a shit ton of games And I don't see any universe where he doesn't win a couple MVPs.
2: What do you think? Oh, yeah, I I absolutely agree. I mean, he entered this year as the betting favorite going into year four with a team that like did not have contender level personnel and the raw production is always going to be there. I mean, he's walking 28, nine and nine pretty much. So I completely agree. And he's continued to add to and refine his game like year in, year out. So I'm totally with you. I'd be shocked if he doesn't win an MVP.
1: All right, Jason. I have one I have one last note on Luca yeah. really quick. Go for it. This dude is getting it done right now almost entirely on natural ability and feel for the game. There will also be a stretch where he embraces taking care of his body and yeah. he embraces a hard work element. He literally said at the JJ Reddit podcast that he did a step back randomly in a Euroleague game, and the coaches were like, you should do that more often. It's not <laughs> like this dude was practicing it. So my thing is is like yeah. There will be a phase of his career, probably late 20s, early 30s, where he kind of has all those details figured out. And that's when it could get really ridiculous with that guy.
2: Yeah, no, that is a a terrifying concept. Because, I mean, like you said, he is already among the best players of his age we have ever seen, has been for the last few years. All right, Mm -hmm. Jason, what's more likely, that the Brooklyn Nets win the Eastern Conference or that they lose in the first round of the playoffs? Oh,
1: this is a really tough one because I am picking Brooklyn to win the East, but their series is in the first round. If they faced Milwaukee or um, Boston, I think it's a six or seven game series, which could go either way. So like, that's literally what I think is going to happen. They're either going to lose in the first round or they're going to win the whole damn thing. So I would say, oh man, I'm going to say it's more likely that they win, but it's barely over a coin flip because it's all about matchups. Like if they, if they catch Miami or Philly in the first round, they're going to cruise through the first round, which buys you an extra two weeks to get Ben Simmons back. Potentially Ben Simmons is a Mm -hmm. supernatural fit to just plug in there because they don't need him to do anything other than defend and to make reads out of the short roll or maybe out of the dunker spot. Right. So like, It's they. Any like If they get a good draw and they get bought a lot of extra time, that could be devastating for the rest of the league because they'll be really clicking by the time they get to a Milwaukee or to a Boston. But then they could catch Milwaukee in the first round, not have Ben Simmons, not have some of their defensive details work out, and end up losing. So I could see it going both ways, but mm-hmm. I'd lean towards them winning.
2: All right. Last one here, and unquestionably, unquestionably the most important, Star Wars has announced that it's moving the release date of Obi-Wan Kenobi to May 27th. Is it more likely that the show is excellent or terrible? Wait,
1: they moved it back in within the same Wait, It was supposed to be early May, right? So they moved it just a couple of weeks. Yes. That's really strange. Oh, man. um, So I, I expect to enjoy it no matter what, but. Anytime you hear reshoots or delays, that's scary. And this is a really weird timeline they're working in. Them trying to do this series directly goes against some core plot points in Star Wars. And so from that standpoint, like, I expect to be frustrated a lot during it and reshoots scare me. I expect to enjoy it, but I don't expect to, like, appreciate its place in the Star Wars story. And I love that you asked me a Star Wars question. Thank you, Carson.
2: Yeah, of course, man. Got to get you right in your bag. And it's actually even weirder. They moved it two days, but they're doing the first two episodes at once. So who knows? Who knows what's going on over there? That could
1: be as simple as them thinking that the cliffhanger at the end of episode one isn't good enough, or that this episode Mm -hmm. two will be the one that really captures the audience. Like, here's the thing. It's like with you guys. When it comes to production stuff, I'm leaning entirely. On, I know the basketball. That's my bread and butter. i leave the production stuff to you guys. The people promoting this show know exactly what they're doing, and I, I will trust them to figure it out. As a Star Wars fan, I have to enjoy it. I'm just going to say I don't appreciate the fact that they're going to step on their own <laughs> plot lines. There, they, There's been a lot of disrespecting George yeah. Lucas done by Disney, but that's a whole other
2: story. You did get in the Hollywood mindset there for a second though. Cause I think that's pretty good rationalization <laughs> that you gave of why they would have made that move. So, you know, don't sell yourself <laughs> short.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Carson. I appreciate you coming on, man. All right, guys, that is all we have for tonight. I sincerely appreciate you guys coming to hang out. We will be back tomorrow. After the final buzzer of Lakers Pelicans, I am extraordinarily excited. I think we're going to see some good Laker basketball and a little flash in the pan of greatness from those guys. I appreciate your guys' support as always, and I will see you tomorrow night.